Hey there, thanks for joining us here at Compass Church, where we are making God accessible to everyone. If you have any questions or want to learn more about us as a church, head over to our website, compassbn.com. We hope this inspires you and gives you practical ways to live out your faith. Enjoy the message. Well, hey, thank you again for joining me. Uh, We are here in the last week of our Icebergs message series because last week we actually finished working our way through the seven sections of teaching that Jesus gave us in Matthew 5, verse 17 through 48, or as I've been calling it, the iceberg section of the Sermon on the Mount. And we called it that because Jesus was exposing the larger truths underlying some religious assumptions that the people in his day believed. He was exposing the underside of the tip of the iceberg. And in doing this, he not only gave his followers some practical ways in which to love other people, but he showed us how to think about religious law, religious tradition, and our own religious assumptions. And even though we finished with his teaching in Matthew 5, I still felt like there was an overarching idea to be explored in what Jesus was doing and and how it, it can be applied in our lives today. And that idea, that overarching idea, is probably best summed up in a word that, depending on your perspective, is either something to be shunned or it's something to be embraced. And that word is deconstruction. Now, if you're familiar with it, deconstruction is a term that over the last few years has come to define when a Christian or someone who was raised in a church tradition begins to question what they believe and why they believe it. The process of deconstruction is to break apart the faith that was handed to us and the assumptions that came with it, toss out what isn't working, tune up what needs attention, and put it all back together again. Now, a lot of evangelicals don't like deconstruction because at its root, it's challenging. I mean, it's challenging deeply held beliefs. I mean, it even challenges things that are held as fundamentally true and necessary to faith in Jesus. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, for example, when Terry and I bought our first house, when our kids were just babies, I took one of the rooms and I made it into a recording studio. It was, I mean, it was pretty cool. I had this big desk with my computer on it and I had these giant, amazing sounding studio monitors. I had guitars hanging on all the walls and sitting on guitar stands throughout the room. There was this open closet that was just full of guitar pedals and cables and all of this other recording gear. It was awesome. And it should have been. Because up until that point, for my whole entire life, I wanted a house so that I could have a recording studio. I mean, honestly, one of the purposes in owning our own home was so that I could have a place where I could play and record music at any time and at any volume. But then something happened. The babies became toddlers and they got bigger and they outgrew the bedroom that they all shared with all of their toys. And so we needed a separate toy room for them, a place for them to play. And guess what room they got? My studio. I packed up all my stuff, I moved it from my custom room into our dingy basement that had about a six foot ceiling. And the room that held my recording studio got deconstructed and reconstructed into a toy room for the kids. And I learned something too. See, my assumption had always been that the main purpose of any house that I was gonna own would be to further my career in music. But after deconstructing and reconstructing that room, 
I realized that the actual main purpose of my home is to give my family an equipped and a loving place to be together. And that becomes a no-brainer to you, right? But for me, I had to deconstruct my beliefs around what my house was meant to be in order to reconstruct it into what it actually should be. So we all have beliefs and assumptions that when challenged, they may not hold up under scrutiny. But until we challenge those things, they will always be weak and fragile and incomplete. And and they won't be able to live up to the purpose for which we think those beliefs and assumptions exist in the first place. And I wanna talk about this today because our entire Icebergs message series is a collection of deconstructions that sit on top of one major deconstruction that we've referred to a lot. You see, no one deconstructed religious assumptions like Jesus. He challenged commonly held religious beliefs like no one else. And one deconstruction set a template for understanding everything else that he taught and that he did. And if you've been with us in this series, you have heard that the law of Moses, the Jewish religious law that most of us know as the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, was comprised of 613 separate laws that all the Jewish people had to follow, all 613 of them. And when Jesus was asked, which was the most important of those commands, this is what he said in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven: Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. Now, this is a verse that we have quoted over and over, and we've talked about it over and over during this message series, because it's really been foundational to what Jesus is talking about. But I want to make sure you really get what Jesus is doing here. He isn't just saying that these are the most important important commands in the law of Moses. He's actually deconstructing the law of Moses. Because when he says the entire law are based on these two commandments— He's saying that these are the only two commandments that require your full attention and obedience. He has stripped down 613 commands, pushed 611 of them aside, and said, just do these two. These two are enough to accomplish God's purpose in everything that came before. And if we just get these two things right, we get everything right. And if that sounds radical, that Jesus basically just voided 1,500 years of strict adherence to hundreds of religious, ceremonial, and moral commands, it's because it is radical. It's almost unbelievable. And I say that because Christians in the first century, they still had a hard time not making the law of Moses the centerpiece of their faith. And as a result of that, we see that not only did Jesus deconstruct and reconstruct the beliefs and assumptions of the religious people in his day, but that he set in motion a pattern of deconstruction that the church followed. And I want to walk you through just a few examples in the New Testament of early Christians continuing to not only challenge religious beliefs and assumptions, but to regularly strip their religious structures down in order to live out the core purpose that Jesus laid out to love God and to love people. 
And, and we can start with one area that we've already talked about earlier in this, in this message series, and that's divorce. In Matthew 5.32, Jesus said this, but I say a man who divorces his wife, unless she's been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. So here Jesus said that the only qualification for divorce and remarriage is adultery, some sort of sexual sin that violates the marriage covenant. Now, that's super cut and dry, right? I mean, full stop, that's it. But something happened over the next couple of decades. Gentiles, non-Jews, were becoming Christians, but some of their spouses weren't. And as a result, the church was facing an influx of broken marriages, of, of couples that were getting divorced that hadn't existed before. And look what Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, But if the husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving, let them go. In such cases, the believing husband or wife is no longer bound to the other. So more than 20 years after Jesus gave his command to only divorce because of adultery, Paul adds another qualification, abandonment. And Jesus didn't imply this or even make room for this in his command. And still two decades later, Paul deconstructed and reconstructed Jesus's command under the guidance of the Holy Spirit by asking and answering two questions. What is the purpose of marriage? And how do we love people whose marriages are being abandoned by no fault of their own? Jesus's command to love people became Paul's guide to navigating a new situation that hadn't even been imagined yet. So that's the first one. Next, uh, let's talk about the deconstruction of Gentile Christians in the church. So the very first Christians, they were all Jewish. And even those that weren't born Jewish had fully converted to Judaism. And so they, they still followed all of the Jewish laws. Like, for example, not associating with pagan Gentiles. It was against the law and against tradition. And it wasn't done in the church. For the first six to seven years of Christianity, Christian Jews didn't associate with Gentiles until God told Peter otherwise in Acts 10, verse 28. So that Peter told them, you know it is against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So Peter's saying, this has always been against the law, but now, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, I'm rethinking this stuff. So the word gets out, right, that this is what Peter did. And Peter was called before the leadership of the church in Jerusalem to make account for the fact that he was hanging out with Gentiles, eating with them. So Peter told them what God had told him. And he told them about how Gentiles who hadn't converted to Judaism were genuinely becoming followers of Jesus. The story continues, Acts eleven eighteen. When the others heard this, they stopped objecting and began praising God. They said, we can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. And just like that, the deeply held belief that Gentiles can't be Christians after six or seven years of it being lived out was deconstructed. A religious assumption that was stripped down and rebuilt under the guidance of this question, how do we love our Gentile neighbors? which actually then led to our third deconstruction. And that's the expectation that Christian Gentiles should follow the Jewish law. 
Acts 15, one through two, it says that while Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea, which is Jerusalem, arrived and began to teach the believers. Unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Unless you follow the Jewish law, you can't be a follower of Jesus. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing arguing vehemently. And finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. So 10 years after Gentiles are allowed into the church, the common assumption that they would now follow the Jewish law, now that's being challenged, and mostly by Paul. So they have another big church leadership meeting about it all at at what's called the Council of Jerusalem, a decade after Gentiles first joined the church. This is what happened in Acts 15, 13 and on. And so my judgment, this is what James says, the leader of the Jerusalem church. And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. So here is another deconstruction of religious assumptions. In 17 years of Christianity, they have gone from believing that Gentiles can't be Christians at all to They can be Christians, but they have to follow the Jewish law to they only have to follow four commands that are in the Jewish law about what they can eat and avoiding sexual sin. The assumptions that would have had Gentiles following the religious rules that no longer applied to them were deconstructed and reconstructed again under Jesus's main command for for Jewish Christians to love their Gentile brothers and sisters. The fourth deconstruction is the deconstruction of having any obligation to the Jewish law at all. And if all this is starting to sound scary to you, and maybe it's challenging your own religious assumptions, buckle up. Because in the five to six years that followed the Jerusalem council, Paul then writes this in Galatians 5.1. So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Slavery to the law? I mean, but even I know it's been winnowed down, but what about the rules that the Council of Jerusalem handed down about the laws regarding food sacrifice to idols and the other restrictions? Well, Paul writes again in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So you may eat any meat that is sold in the marketplace without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And if someone who isn't a believer asks you home for dinner, accept the invitation if you want it. Eat whatever's offered to you without raising questions of conscience. If I can thank God for the food and enjoy it, why should I be condemned for eating it? That's a big turnaround, isn't it? From don't eat these types of foods to Paul saying, you can eat whatever you want. And then Paul says this in in 1 Corinthians 8.8. He says, it's true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we don't eat it, and we don't gain anything if we do. The church leaders, just five to six years before, had set out a new church rule, a religious guideline based on commands that were in the law of Moses for how all Christians are supposed to avoid certain foods. And here, Paul is just blowing that up. 
Why? Because he's deconstructing this rule down to its purpose and reconstructing it based on the new reality they were living in. See, some Christians felt that eating the food sacrificed to idols that was being sold in the marketplace was an actual act of worshiping those gods because that's how they used to worship those gods themselves. But take a look at how Paul reconstructs this food sacrifice to idols guideline because the reconstruction here is just as important as the deconstruction. 1 Corinthians 10, 28-29. But suppose someone tells you this meat was offered to an idol. Don't eat it out of consideration for the conscience of the one who told you. It might not be a matter of conscience for you, but it is for the other person. So Paul's saying this, you can eat whatever you want, but if it violates someone's conscience, don't do it around them. Why? Because it's wrong to eat that food? No, but because that's what it looks like to love your neighbor. Paul elaborates again in Galatians 5.13. For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Use your freedom instead, check this out, to serve one another in love. Paul deconstructs, deconstructs the religious rules about what food you can and can't eat. But he doesn't reconstruct it around rights or reason or religion. He reconstructs it around Jesus's overarching command to love our neighbor as ourself. And some of you may be thinking, well, what about the command to love God with all our heart, soul, and strength? I mean, you haven't mentioned that one hardly at all, Chris. And I know, because there's one more deconstruction that Paul rolls out in Galatians 5.14. He says, for the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus taught about the two commands in one, loving God and loving others, it still stands. But in breaking down the application, in deconstructing the application of faith in Jesus, Paul puts it back together into one command, love your neighbor as yourself. And he does this with the understanding that if followers of Jesus love other people fully and completely, that they will inevitably be fulfilling the command to love God because God loves people. When we love them, we love him. And with, with each progressive deconstruction, things keep narrowing down into one thing, loving others. Because loving people is the narrow path Jesus is calling us to. Over and over again, when we see church tradition come into conflict with loving someone well, loving our neighbor always wins out every time. And the model that Jesus, Peter, and Paul in the early church laid out for us is one of deconstruction and reconstruction around Jesus's command to love others. And so in light of this, let's ask ourselves some questions. First, what assumptions do I need to deconstruct so I can love people better? Second, do I have religious assumptions that are actually hurting others? And finally, ask yourself this, how can I better love my neighbor as myself? Jesus created a template for us to continually deconstruct and reconstruct our religious assumptions. 
and to rebuild those assumptions on the foundation of the gospel that Jesus lived, that he died, and that he rose again to pay the penalty for our sins so that every single person can have a relationship with God through Jesus and rebuilt and reconstructed, reconstructed on the simple and sole command to love our neighbor as ourself. It's so simple, it's so narrow, it's so focused, and it's just so very Jesus. I hope that we can live this out today as a church and tomorrow and the next day and next week. May we always be people who if nothing else is said about us, it can be said that we love people, we love them well. Thanks again for joining us today. If you want to learn more about us as a church, get connected, need prayer, or anything else at all, head over to our website, compassbn.com.